Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. Five minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock on the third day of March. And good to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline on this Wednesday. Ooh, lots to be talking about tonight. One of the issues, of course, that um, we've not yet covered that needs to be covered is the debate over the fight for 15 or an increase in the minimum wage. And we're going to spend some time later on with uh, Jerry Bowyer, the publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily, as to why this sort of makes sense in some places and in other places makes no sense whatsoever. We'll get to that conversation later on in tonight's program. Our first guest tonight has been canceled. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're <laughs> Although we are about to talk about that very notion. Did you hear the news in the last couple of days? The, um, the publishing organization that owns rights to the Dr. Seuss books. Remember Cat in the Hat and all that? Well, they have announced that six of the books written by Dr. Seuss will be taken out of publication because they have offensive artwork or, uh, how should we say, um, modern-day culturally insensitive depictions, which one I think would expect for books that were written in the 1930s. In fact, this range of books, the six books, it's not all of them. There's quite a few more than I realized he had written. But, but of the six they, six, they were published between 1937 and 1950. And the question of, well, why not just change out the art comes to mind. But then again, this seems to be a part of an ongoing um, slow march into insanity. You'll recall our covering the announcement, and then they pulled back on it. Now they've tabled it, deciding that somehow educating our kids was a bigger priority. Funny that. San Francisco Unified School District renaming 44 schools across the district, costing potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars to do so. And amongst those on the list, of course, are the most offensive names that you can think of, Lincoln and Washington, even though we just recently were given a national holiday celebrating their birthdays. Jeep Cherokee, potentially dropping the name Cherokee, and on and on the list goes. Mr. Pato Potato Head is now, I don't know, gender neutral. Let's find out what's going on. No Noel Mirren is with us today, author of an upcoming book, Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. And uh, Noel, great to have you with us. Are you there? The man on the other wire says, 
Standby, please. No adjustment of your set is necessary. I think he has to drop another <laughs> 25 cents in the coin box. Remember doing that? There's a good percentage of you listening right now that have no clue what I'm talking about. That's okay. It was a nostalgic time. Um, when and if Noel joins us, we're going to unfold this subject matter a little bit deeper as to what we think is going to be accomplished by all of this. And most startling, I think, is the notion that we are offended by <clears throat> publications, works, writings, artwork, etc., etc., statues from a previous time. And while I think certainly there are... Okay, there we go. Uh, Noel, great to have you with us. We had to drop another nickel in the coin slot there. <laughs> no problem. Great to be here. I, I, I want to assure you, though, this was not attempt, an attempt to cancel you by any means. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's dive into this topic. And I, I mentioned to the, the listeners at the get-go, uh, of course, the, the, the latest bit of insanity pertaining to um, Dr. Seuss. And I, I think the one thing that I'm trying to wrap my mind around, whether we're talking about deciding not to publish certain books of his, some of which go all the way back to 1937, to uh, the recent announcement by the San Francisco Unified School District to remove the names off of 44 separate schools because they have connections with moments in history that um, in, in, in today's standards we have uh, we take umbrage to. And, and, and I'm wondering if any of us at any point in time could survive the test of time in history as viewpoints, opinions, mores change and evolve I, I wonder if a hundred years from now, things that were done in this current time by, you know, the, the Steve Jobs of the worlds and, and, and you know, uh, all, all of those that are alive today, if we use the standards of a hundred years from now, doesn't that really leave the potentiality of everything and everyone associated with history to be canceled? Yes, and I think that that's actually part of the point, is to disorient ourselves from our own history. So, you know, what the Dr. Seuss thing in particular does is it achieves two specific goals, which is, one, it makes us suspicious of our society, suspicious of the people around us, the, the culture we've been raised in, and two, it makes us suspicious of ourselves, because we all grew up reading Dr. Seuss, and so then we have to think, what did I miss? What racism did I miss then? What racism am I missing now? It makes us question our own ability to understand um, just to understand justice. And once they, do, they achieve that, those two goals, it makes us very docile to the mob because they become the authority now about what is right and what's okay for, based on what's canceled and what's, what's allowed. And, you know, there, 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 are, there are actions in people's lives that might be considered by any standard to be over-the-top and offensive. And I've, I've said before, yeah, maybe statues dedicated to Robert E. Lee, who fought to divide the country and so-called protect the rights of people to own other people. Yeah, may, maybe you don't want that in the town square, but can't you move it to a museum and use it as a teaching tool and explain the point behind all of that, as opposed to just suggesting let's erase all of it? Because I think if we start to erase our history, and not to be simplistic about this, Noel, but it seems to me that old adage, those who forget their history are condemned to repeat it. Are, are, we, are we wrought with the potentiality of going down that road through all this, this cancel culture? 
It sure looks like that because there doesn't seem to be a real limiting principle as far as what gets canceled. So as you said, they might start with, you know, Confederates, but then all of a sudden Abraham Lincoln's being canceled. But, you know, people who are, who are true American heroes. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I, I say in my book, the Awake Not Woke, it, this, this, there's, they really have a supply and demand problem. So the sustenance of this woke movement is the, the, the division of, of, of people. They really thrive on rupture rupture from our past, rupture from one another, dividing us into groups, tribalism. Um, but as we have blessedly grown less racist and more, you know, more open to one another, more able to think uni- in universal human terms, there's less of a supply of racism. And so they have to go looking and hunting for these white things to uncover, further injustices to uncover in order to feed this movement. Well, moreover, I have to wonder, don't we also run the risk of this definition growing and morphing, where today it's about cultural sensitivity, racial sensitivity, points of which, uh, to certain degrees, I I, I get and understand and even agree with. That said, at what point do we have to run into the very real risk of having, in short order, different people, different views, different standards. And I am uh, thinking back to newsreel footage that I've seen of the mid-1930s with massive book burnings going on in Nazi Germany because modern art was considered taboo, anything written by anyone of Jewish ancestry or a Jewish-sounding last name was considered verboten, and so there was an attempt back then to cancel a lot of German culture. And, of course, I understand that that was a severe example, but isn't there always a slippery slope when you start engaging in this and you don't do it in a thoughtful fashion that, you know, all of a sudden we're throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater? There is definitely a slippery slope. I mean, we saw with Mao Zedong in China, too, that the, the state controlling and burning books and, you know, counseling the, our, the cultural history and traditions in order to, you know, erect a communist government. Um, so, I, you know, I think that you're absolutely right that there are impulses. They're preying on the impulses that are good. We want to be compassionate. We want to not be racist. You know, these are things that mo- all normal human beings want. You know, we see them as good. But they take that natural compassion and they really exploit it in order to introduce a whole host of principles that are really real lies. You know, they want us to feel that we're defined by evil. We know we're defined by love. We're defined by our creator. The woke movement defines human beings based on oppression, the evil that you've done, the evil that you are, have been subjected to. That is the whole uh, dynamic of their, of their understanding of who we are as people. And so the outgrowth of that is that everything becomes a power struggle. So this is really antithetical to the Christian message, and I think we really need to understand that and see it clearly. Well, you, you've just anticipated my next question, and that is, you know, if we if we start taking a, a yardstick of today's standards up against material that was written in the case of Dr. Seuss uh, back in the 1930s, and I, I was pondering for myself, well, if some of the art is offensive, and I'm seeing a couple of pieces, and I thought, yeah, that, that's kind of out of context for 2000. And 21, why not just change the artwork to make it more contemporary? But the other concern here is, 
at what point do we start to reach into other materials and say, well, you know, we, we find cases of content within Scripture, for example, that is not in keeping with today's culture and today's racial sensitivities or, or other sensitivities, and therefore we're now canceling the Bible. We're going to deem this book to be offensive and outlaw its publication. I mean, I, I understand that that is kind of taking things to uh, an exaggerated degree, but at some point you have to wonder you know how exaggerated is that really yeah i don't really think it's exaggerated at all actually i think it's right on but that is the real concern because certainly gender ideology is on the move and it's accelerating at quite a quick pace um and the bible will not just you know, is irreconcilable with the radical gender ideology that they're trying to introduce um so yeah i think that that's we should certainly should not be afraid and i think not being afraid is the best thing we can do because you know we have to have courage in the way that this movement succeeds is by us being too cowardly to speak against it. So um, I don't think we should be afraid. We should certainly be aware and, um, and, and cognizant of what's happening. Final question for you, Noel. You're the parent of six children. How do parents use this as a teaching moment? I mean, I think of, you know, the notion of wanting to erase Lincoln's name off of Lincoln High School in San Francisco because the perception that he didn't do enough. <sighs> okay. Uh, how, how can we turn this into a teaching moment for kids in order to, to keep things in historical perspective and help them learn? I think probably the best thing we can do besides our praying and talk, having open, good conversations with them is just to really encourage them to be reading good books and lots of old books, you know, that, that, that popular culture will absorb their minds in a very specific, thin way. But if you are a richly read in the Western tradition of canon of great books, then it's really going to be a buffer um, because that the thinness of today can't really stand up to the depth of, of the thought of the, that's contained in the great works of, of literature and, and books. Noel, we appreciate your time. Noel Nuring, author of the upcoming book, Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology soon to be published and released by 10 publications. You'll find it at the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. You can check out more about Noelle's insights and writings online at Noelle, N-O-E-L-L-E, Mering, M-E-R-I-N-G, dot com. 518 from KFAX. Let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. I want to turn the corner into a topic that we have uh, not really dove much into, though it's been much in the news since the start of the new congressional session, and that is the fight for 15, the push for a $15 minimum wage. You know, the argument goes that $15 an hour, people can barely survive, keep a roof over their heads, etc., etc. And, you know, there are levels that, I guess, in a simplistic fashion of of looking at this um, are all quite true, but it's far more complicated than what it seems on the surface. And to get some insights, we're joined now by financial economist, publisher of the affluent Investor Daily, Jerry Mauer. And Jerry, always good to have you with us. Always good to be with you. So I did a little uh, research in preparation for our conversation today. And, and if this proposal of $15 an hour would go through, Based on an individual having a full-time job, that would be earnings of $31,200 per year. 
Now, here's what I think is so problematic, and I'm hoping you can help me and listeners to understand what, what really is behind this proposal. If you are earning that $15 an hour wage in, uh, well, let's take, for example, Missoula, Montana, where a one-bedroom apartment will set you back $955 a month, you will pay $11,460 a year to rent said apartment, leaving you a cool $19,740 for everything else. Here at home in the Bay Area, that $31,000 or $31,200 is going to be a bit problematic because in San Francisco, the average one-bedroom apartment costs $2,641 a month Mm-hmm. Costing a grand total of 31692 per year, which means before you get started on anything else, you're already $492 in the hole. How do we come about with a national minimum wage of $15 when the cost of living is so broad and diverse across this country? Well, because you're doing um, financial analysis, but $15 an hour is a political number. It's a number that you know, politicians feel like they can sell. It's kind of focus grouped. You know, no one went out there and did all the different analysis and said, well, this is what a $15 an hour um, minimum wage will mean in this particular market or that particular market. I mean, you have bus- different business climates, just like you have different climates, right? You have different building codes in places that have a lot of flooding than in places where you don't have a lot of flooding. And you have different wage scales in different places as well, um, which, of course, is an argument for federalism. It's an argument for not having a national minimum wage at all. Um, because it's exactly the sort of thing, if you're going to set wages, if, if the government is going to set wages, there are problems with that. But if the government is going to do it, obviously it should be the government closest to the people. It ought to be the, gov- it ought to be the state or even the county-level government, which would adjust that uh, minimum wage level um, to be something like the average, you know, based partly on what the average wage is and the average cost of living. In San Francisco, you qualify for federal housing subsidies if you make less than $100,000 a year. That's the cutoff point because it's so incredibly (laughs) expensive to live there. Um, And there are other places where it's really inexpensive to live. So a a minimum wage of $15 an hour in San Francisco won't move the needle on employment because almost everybody makes that. Um, But there are places where $15 an hour is a really good wage um, and if you make everything under that, if you make $14.99 an hour a crime, you're going to put a whole lot of people out of work. Well, not only that, but let's talk about the impact on small business. And I, you, you have a unique understanding on this. And again, back to our example. So in a city like San Francisco, where you're moving a lot of hamburgers at the average hamburger joint, and uh, you're probably running a 24-hour-a-day operation, and maybe you're getting... Seven eight dollars for said hamburger. Maybe coming up with fifteen dollars an hour to pay your employees is not all that much of a stretch. But if the cost of living is so significantly cheaper, and back to our example of Missoula, Montana, it would seem to me that down there a hamburger is probably going for five bucks. They're probably not open twenty four hours a day. They probably don't have enough business to support that. So how does the business owner trying to run the same hamburger store? 
selling right. the same burger and fries in San Francisco versus Missoula, hope to even survive and, and make any kind of a, a, a living for themselves and provide jobs for the neighborhood when there's such a disparity in their capacity to, to earn money and pay employees. Yeah, I mean, you're making a good point. Not only do wage rates vary by region, but you know, the price of doing business varies by region. Um, this is, not to be technical, this is something called purchasing power parity. And what it means is that um, life is cheaper in poorer places than it is in richer places um, because there's more capacity to spend. There's more capacity where there's more income. Uh, there's generally higher prices. Um, and so, again, it's really crazy to have this kind of economic regulation, this kind of price setting. I think it's crazy to have government price setting in general, but it's definitely crazy to do it at a national level. One other point about small business, um, I mean, there's, well, actually a couple more points. One is they just got their teeth kicked in with all of these COVID shutdowns. I mean, small business has endured an enormous beatings, especially retail. And then we're what? We're going to drop another anvil on top of it with enforced higher wage rates? I mean, what do we think that this sector can take? I mean, just how much abuse can small business owners, retail owners, uh, bar and grill, diner, um, small retail outlets, I mean, just how much do we think our government can do to them without utterly destroying them? So that's well, what it will do. If we actually got $15 an hour minimum wage, we would do a lot of destroying of mom-and-pop shops, especially in the heartland and especially in the south. But don't worry. You'll still get your stuff. Big box retailers who have more economies of scale, more capital, more automation, will come in and replace them. So what we'll end up doing is we will transfer market share from small businesses to gigantic retail chains um, and e-commerce. So Amazon, Amazon would love a $15 an hour minimum wage imposed on all those local bookstores that are left. Um, and so, you know, Walmart would love it as well. All of the big chains will love this because they can, they're able to deal with it, but the small shop isn't able to deal with it. So essentially what you're saying is what COVID hasn't destroyed, something like this $15 an hour minimum wage will put the final nail in the coffin of the, the average small business. And, you know, some listening might say, wait, wait a minute, guys, Jerry, Craig, hang on. Can't you adjust some of this for inflation? And I suppose you can. But then conversely, so as you're paying that, you know, get that 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 broad swath between the uh, the five dollar hamburger in Missoula and the eight dollar hamburger in San Francisco in order to try and and make the wages and, you know, remain in business. Does it also suggest that the small business owner has to adjust their prices and essentially price themselves, as I think you're suggesting, out of business? I don't know about you, but there is no planet nor set of circumstances under which I think a hamburger would be worth thirty dollars. It just <laughs> yeah, I just well, don't see. And here's it. the thing: conservatives say that this will get passed on as higher prices, and I understand why we say that, but that's not what really will happen. What this will get this will get passed on in the form of bankruptcies. Um, so we we will there'll be a super big. Um, McDonald's is going to be able to deal with this. How will they be able to deal with it? Well, they've got the money for kiosks. Uh, the big winner here will be anything robotic, anything automation that uh, takes the place of a low-skill wager. Wow. Uh, this doesn't sound very healthy where it's heading. As you say, it, it's more seemingly of a political 
um, gimmick than anything else. And yet there it is being debated in the halls of Congress and with much, much uh, vim, vinegar and uh, uh, veracity. Let's uh, take a time out. I want to come back to more of our conversation and, and dig down onto a couple of realities. One is the notion of why a federal minimum wage was even established in the first place and whatever became of the notion of entry-level jobs. Are we really expected to buy a house and raise a family on a McDonald's salary? I'm Craig Roberts, Jerry Bauer with us today, publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. We take a time out for an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Jerry Bauer is with us today. He is an economist and publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. Information available on the web, by the way, at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Jerry, I'm curious. Historically, it was 1938 when Congress first authorized the so-called federal minimum wage. Back in those days, it was 25 cents. What was the original intent of establishing this in the first place? Uh, to keep um, black Americans who had been migrating north from um, getting into the labor market there. Um, you had, obviously, you had uh, black Americans who wanted to get away from Jim Crow, uh, essentially a system of uh, apartheid, and they were moving north, um, and there was fear about labor market competition, um, and there was fear about integration. Um, because uh, you know economy's growing, then you you, know, you have a situation where you're hiring people, and some of the people you're hiring are black people, and there are folks who didn't want black people working alongside white people. So minimum wage basically what it did is it priced out new entrants into the workforce. So if you're coming, let's say you're coming up from the south and you're a sharecropper. You've never operated machinery in your life, or you don't, you're not a cab driver. You don't, you don't have the skills for some of those jobs that pay more. Um, so you can't make that, the, you know, that minimum wage. You might get a job, you might get a starter job, you know, at a lower wage, and then develop skills, and then kind of move up economically. Um, so by raising the wage above that level. Um, you're essentially keeping black people from being able to enter the, the workforce. Um, and by the way, that's why you have a lot of history of like jitney drivers um, and African Americans, you know, in occupations frequently um, that might have been like kind of outside the law or non-unionized or et cetera, because in essence they were locked out of certainly unionized jobs by the seniority system, but they were locked out of a lot of other jobs by the minimum wage. And ironically, of course, if we take that 25 cents an hour and adjust it for inflation, people think, wow, 1938 to 2021, that's going to be a, that's going to be easily $15. No, it's actually $4.61, which raises another question. Uh, the notion of trying to make a livable wage, as we've suggested, I don't think we can agree. You know, anything in, in a state like California, and you alluded to this earlier, anything under hundred grand is barely a livable wage. That varies, of course, as we've delineated from 
even parts of the state, let alone parts of the country. That said, what happened to this notion that there were certain jobs that were considered entry-level jobs that were never intended to be careers, never intended right. to be feed a family of four and pay for a house? Yeah. Is that just an old-fashioned idea? I don't know. I mean, I call them starter jobs, right? I, was, your, was your first job minimum wage? Mine was. Um, yep. And I think my second job was minimum wage at McDonald's and you know, night, night shift on, at the local Ponderosa mopping up and clearing the, the dishes, right? Minimum wage is a starter job. I was 15 years old. I, I was not supporting a family when I was 15 years old. I got married early, but not that early. Um, so I, I see absolutely no reason why we should make it illegal to have jobs exist that don't support a family when most people, the vast majority of people who are working for minimum wage are not supporting a family. Minimum wage jobs tend to be jobs for teenagers, uh, they tell, or they're, they're jobs for maybe college students on the summer, you know, in the, in the summer mowing lawns or something like that. Minimum wage jobs are sometimes for a second uh, breadwinner. In my family, I've had a situation where, uh, you know, my uncle was a fireman, and when the kids got out of the house, then my aunt went and worked at Burger King. And she started at minimum wage, although she worked her way up. So it wasn't a family-sustaining wage. She it was already a family-sustaining wage through his job. So minimum wage jobs are almost never there as the main support for the family. They're there for supplementary income, or they're there for, star for starter jobs. Now, I mean, the real social you know, tragedy of making these jobs illegal is if you illegalize starter jobs, then there are people who never get started. And if you never get started, that's really tragic. Now, there's two things that you can do. If, if you make it illegal to have a starter job, then someone will either go into an illegal occupation, they'll do something that, you know, is, that, that is legal, or they never will get started. And it's just a whole lifetime of underemployment or unemployment, um, you know, really a waste. Now, you know who this doesn't affect? Anybody whose daddy is rich and well-connected. Because that, those people have social networks, and they can get their kids jobs. Even if, the, even if the kid is only producing $10 an hour, they have their favor bank, so they can get their kids a job at $15 an hour. So who's most hurt? Somebody who has not been employed before, somebody who is not socially networked, um, and somebody who lives in a place that's poor enough that $15 an hour is much higher than the market wage as opposed to someplace where it's about the market wage. The likelihood of this passing right now in Congress, slim to numb, it seems? Uh, I, don't, I don't see it passing. I mean, you know, the parliamentarian knocked it out of the COVID relief bill. I mean, thank God for right. that. I did some integrity, right? Now, as a standalone, I, I don't really see it passing. Although I wouldn't be shocked if we had something like a lower amount, you know, $11 with maybe a, a price escalator. Because we live in a time of terrible economic ignorance, so people just do not understand that the minimum wage is a job destroyer. And there's so much propaganda on TV. I, you know, I just saw someone on TV show who said, all the studies show that minimum wage helps jobs, doesn't hurt them. You know what? Some, someone's done a study of studies. 80% of the studies say minimum wage decreases jobs. 
4% of studies say that it increases jobs, and the others say it's neutral. So overwhelmingly, the consensus of the researchers is the perfectly common sense notion that if you make it illegal to hire somebody at the market wage, then people don't hire them. Because why would you hire someone, unless you're doing somebody a favor, uh, why would you hire someone at a higher cost than they're able to produce, which is unskilled labor um, just entering the market? We appreciate some insights today, looking at the proposal for a $15 minimum wage. Derry Bauer with us. He is, again, an economist and publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. More information available on the web at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Derry, as always, we appreciate... And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. With uh, perhaps not as much media attention as it needed to receive, um, the approval of H.R. 5 has gone through in the House on a largely party-line vote of 224 to 206, known as H.R. 5, or the Equality Act. Um, There's a bit of a duplicitous definition to what they mean by equality as we get more insights from Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and the host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And, and Brian, this is, uh, this is nothing about equality at the core, is it really? Oh, it's just stunning to see what is being presented as law that is so far from reality, and yet they can call it whatever they want, and they can push it through, that they have allies in the media to redefine reality, then off it goes. But this proposal, H.R. 5, is so far-reaching. Obviously, the definition of gender, and you and I know, and many of our friends are fighting very, very hard, the whole question of, of how many genders are there and some of that madness. But in a larger sense, most people don't fully appreciate that Roe versus Wade actually has not given the woman a right to choose. Now, that may sound bold, but it's actually something that was said specifically by Justice Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg never liked Roe v. Wade, and honest attorneys on the left don't really like Roe. Because what Roe really did, and it was through its companion decision, Doe versus Bolton, they were linked decisions, and no one digs deep enough. But it authorized an abortionist to make all the decisions according to their learned opinions of the complications that might come. And those complications could be anything, nothing physical psychological, relative to the woman's age, sociological, and do it at any time in the pregnancy. So yes, there is abortion on demand in America, but it's not based on women's rights. It's based on the authority of the physician to do what they think is best. This offends the feminists. They know that people are getting tired of abortion. And they know that the truth about Roe, it is going to be overturned because it literally doesn't have the authority they've said it does. It's Doe v. Bolton that allows abortionists to do their work. 
But what they would do through H.R. 5 is proclaim a new right to abortion based on gender, based on simply the fact that they're women. And since I'm a woman and women already have rights, this is about women's rights, huh? So that's what they're trying to do, push it through without any deeper examination. And it's the same thing that, as we spoke in the past, Greg, this is what they do. That's what they're doing with the ERA. They're trying to resurrect the ERA, which needed needed seven years in that window long past. But they want to say, well, if we have an equal rights amendment, well, that means since only women can get pregnant, they have to have the right to kill the baby. And then that would go into law. Everyone who looks at Roe will admit, and even Justice Blackman admitted, he didn't get it from the Constitution. It was a concept of privacy that had emanated from the penumbra of the Constitution. So this word game is very real, and the implications are very, very real. And so what you're seeing in Washington is more of the same, and H.R. 5 is so disjointed from reality. And unless you are watching what goes on, unless you hold them accountable, again, there's very few media outlets like KFAX that want to get into what is really going on. And you have to, because we're in a battle of ideas, you have to dig in. And and sadly, so much of this is, is sort of political sleight of hand, isn't it, where, you know, we, we attach terms like equality, and people think, well, listen, that equality, my goodness, that's the American way. Of course, we want people to be treated equal and fairly. And so it, it seems as if some of this is really outright manipulation. They won't admit it, but that not that largely what's going on here? It's entirely what it is. It is what used to be called semantics. But basically, it's a misrepresentation of their ideas by the kind of words that are used. They're not forthright. It is not about equal rights. It's about special rights. It's, you, can, you can almost go back to 1984, read what Orwell said. They are actually inverting their actual purposes and goals. They're putting forward, as Orwell said about equality in those days, said everyone is equal. It's just that some people are more equal than others. And that's exactly what we see here in, with our governor, that he, he's, he has us all under house arrest still. He has, unlike Texas and, and Florida, the businesses are going out of business, and yet he will go to special businesses. He has special restaurants he can go to them. He won't wear the masks. His kids go to private schools. He doesn't have to stay home with those kids. His kids aren't suffering because he is providing what's equal for everyone. So the citizens of California get to be under house arrest. But if you're connected, well, it doesn't apply to you. So this is a, a, an assertion of really it's, it is nearly dictatorial powers since they have the power to say it and they have people that will back them on the television set, that's the reality that you're going to have to live under. And don't buy it. It's very important, especially if you're a Christian. One of our jobs. And clearly, I think, uh, Brian, there's an attempt here that is not too uh, thinly veiled that they, they are recognizing the growing number of states that are putting 
restrictions on abortion, and certainly starting with some of the most egregious in terms of, you know, third trimester, et cetera, et cetera. And this this really is a thinly veiled attempt to try and sort of uh, derail or short circuit those efforts across the the nation, isn't it? In in the sense that if you create a a a law that that uh, now enshrines or 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 uh, codes this as the necessity of protecting equality for all, suddenly the backdoor result is what they really want to do is prevent any law or regulation being passed by the citizens of any state in any effort to try and protect the life of the unborn. That's exactly right, and they won't even admit that. Even if you talk to some of the folks covering covering H.R. 5 or covering the ERA, some of their advocates say, no, 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 this has nothing to do with abortion. This is not. This is just about equality. This is about equal pay and all the other great injustices. But real attorneys will say, no, 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 this is the predicate that you want to put into law to make abortion no longer under the, the very shadowy premise of privacy. You're not free to do anything you want in private. You can't abuse children. Having, using privacy to justify taking another life is so absurd. However, if you can present it under a different legal premise, and that's what they want to do. They want to use gender as their premise to justify abortion on demand. And they see that abortion on demand is likely going to be taken away from them because people are waking up. So this is the battle we're in. It's immediate. It's a battle of ideas, and it's on us. So that's what's happening. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And again, the broadcast, Life Matters, where he has a chance to really go deep on these issues, can be heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. That's Life Matters with Brian Johnston, Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., here on KFAX. More information available on the web at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Six o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. Time to get you a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 